We are living in a world where machines can perform tasks once exclusive to human expertise. And this, from time immemorial, has brought up discussions on human jobs and the nature of workforce. Today, we try to take on a different dimension of the same conversation to understand how this advancement often leads to what experts term as skill erosion. But what exactly is skill erosion and why does it create a relentless cycle? In this episode, we are joined by Esko Pentinen and Yona Roesalo from Alto University to uncover the intricate dynamics behind this phenomenon. Stay tuned as we navigate the fine balance between automation and preserving essential human skills explore the challenges within conventionally rule-based professions like accounting and unravel the need for reskilling in the age of automation. It's so lovely to have two guests on this episode of the podcast. I take immense pleasure in introducing both these wonderful guests from Malta University. Esco is an associate professor in information systems at Alta University School of Business. His research deals with the intricacies related to implementation of AI in organizational settings to harness the benefits while avoiding its pitfalls. It is at the intersection between humans and machines to generate insights on how to coordinate work tasks effectively. You'll see what I'm talking about as the episode progresses. Yona is freshly minted PhD from our Department of Information and Service Management at the Alta University School of Business. He is currently a postdoc in the same department and his research focuses on socio-technical changes in organizational settings. During his PhD, Yona explored how cognitive technologies such as robotic process automation and artificial intelligence transform knowledge work practices and skills required in financial accounting. So thank you so much for the both of you for joining us today and continuing our conversation. So Yona, could you kind of tell us how is the post PhD journey looking? What are you working on? Yeah, sure. Uh, and thank you for having me here and both of us. So. Uh, so yeah, I actually just recently started as a uh, postdoctoral researcher here at the Alt University School of Business. So it's been a nice couple of weeks already preparing all sorts of stuff related to my research as I will be uh, actually heading to Auckland and Brisbane next month. So so there's a lot of uh, new new things coming up already at this point in the uh, postdoc periods. So yeah, really looking forward to the whole postdoctoral phase. So I guess I could briefly mention something about my uh, research. So, uh, so like you mentioned, I've been uh, focusing on understanding how the design and development and deployment of these new cognitive technologies like uh, robotic process automation and uh, machine learning enabled systems. So how those new cognitive technologies transform professional knowledge intensive work and of course, with that, I'm kind of seeking to understand how, for example, these skill sets, work roles and, and work practices of accountants change. So I've been 
most of my uh, studies focus on these uh, socio-technical issues, especially in financial accounting domain. So, so that's basically what I've been working on, especially during the past four years and even before that. So we have had other projects ongoing, actually. Just to give context, Yono was ESCO's master's thesis mm -hmm. student. So, yes. Yeah. You've been working for almost five years now? or No, even more. Uh, uh, the uh, <laughs> Okay. Uh, probably since 2016 or something like that. So, so quite a long time. And Esco, do you want to share something, what you've been working on recently? Yeah, so, well, first of all, thanks for having us in this podcast. So, so my home base, as said, is in Aalto University. So uh, I got my PhD in information systems in uh, 2007. And after that, for eight years, I was in this position that was in between academia and industry. So I got 50% of my paycheck from Alta and 50% of my paycheck from Tieto Corporation. So trying to do kind of uh, both sides, doing business projects at Tieto and then uh, doing research and teaching at uh, Alto. And at that time, I struggled a little bit with research. I hadn't found my kind of identity as a researcher. So then in 2015, when I had this transition more to uh, academia, I, uh, that was kind of a decisive moment in my career. So a lot of things happened. So I could suddenly use more time for research. And that, of course, if you put a lot of effort into something, then good things follow. A lot of things happened in my personal life as well. I got my first child. So it was kind of a really uh, significant year for me. And then after that, we started to pursue these high-end research projects, uh, submitting a lot of papers to basket journals. And we were actually quite successful in getting those through. And in 2015, I had this kind of, uh, which is related actually to the topic of today. So I found my way as a researcher. I found that it was really difficult to get papers in these top journals. There's a lot of competition, so you actually have to differentiate somehow. And I found my way to differentiate, and it's almost exclusively based on exciting data sets. So we spend a lot of time interacting with organizations, practitioners to come up with interesting, unique, revelatory case studies where we claim that we are kind of the only ones that have access to this kind of data. And we'll talk a little bit later then about the paper, of course. So it, it's a, a highly unique case where an organization actually experienced this kind of erosion of skills and was willing to share those experiences with researchers. Very often, these kind of failure cases, organizations are not very willing to share those experiences to researchers so that we've been successful for that. So ever since uh, 2015, I've been kind of pursuing this phenomenon driven approach to research where we try to find an interesting phenomenon, a practical problem, and then we turn that into an academic paper. And that is exactly what happened with this article that we're discussing today. And of course, when you submit these kinds of papers to journals, it has its positives. So I can clearly see that the review panels are often quite impressed about this data. So thinking of how on earth did these authors get their hands on this data, for example, in this paper that we're talking about today, it has, of course, its downsides as well. So when you follow this kind of phenomenon-driven approach, that what we do is that it leads us to very different types of topics. So for example, the publications that we got through there 
ranging from outsourcing to organizational culture to explainability of AI systems to high reliability organizations, legacy systems, technical debt, AI implementation, and so on. So I, I quite often tell this kind of a joke that if you look at my papers, the papers that we published, the literature reviews of those papers do not share a single reference in common. So whenever we embark on a journey, it, a research project, it seems that we need to kind of internalize a whole new set of literature. And that's, of course, really demanding. So I'm always quite jealous of researchers that can spend their whole career looking at one topic, for example. So, for example, here we had to dig deep into the studies on reliance and complacency and erosion of skills. So that's kind of demanding. But uh, the, as said, the upside is that we do end up with very interesting case studies. And I hope that now, when you read this paper that we're discussing today, I hope that you agree that we do have an interesting case study here at hand. And on top of that, during IRIS, you mentioned about this Nordic way of approach to research where we get access to, to exactly. companies and data. That is very unusual because even exactly. coming from India, like if I want to do a case study, I I've been in touch with a couple of companies at this point and it felt much more welcoming than any other experience i've had yes that's an excellent point so indeed i think that the nordics is the region where you can actually pursue this research strategy that we have here of course not all of the studies that we do here are failure cases but very often these kind of failure cases are quite interesting so with our co-author tapani we had an interesting failure case that we managed to publish this year about the legacy system discontinuum. So there was this one organization that had tried to discontinue their legacy system for 15 years and were unable to do that. And indeed, exactly as you say, I'm thinking that in any other location, that company would not have let researchers study this kind of failure that they had. So. So let's get into today's topic. We will again discuss more of these further during the episode, but let's talk about the paper that we are here to discuss. And it was recently published in JAIS titled Vicious Circles of Skill Erosion, a case study of cognitive automation, along with Tapani Rindakahila, Antis Saloara, and Will Soliman. And you have a very interesting case at hand that is financial accounting domain. Could you tell us a little bit of backstory of how that case came about and what's the phenomena that we are looking at today? Yes, so this is connected to what I just said. This is a perfect example of how we try to do research. So we try to expose ourselves to business problems, so practitioners. So we try to talk a lot with them, discuss with them. And I personally actually go to the master's thesis students interviews. So for example, if a master's student does a thesis where they collect uh, interviews, and I quite often actually accompany the student to the interview, it of course helps the student, but it also gives me kind of ideas for research. And this is actually what happens. Jona was my master's student. So we went into this organization where Jona wanted to do a master's thesis on the topic of human machine interaction. So just looking at how accountants use information systems. And in one uh, side sentence, this informant said 
that, well, we had this automation system for several years and then the automation system was discontinued. So they actually took it away from the organization's uh, IT architecture. And the informant said that this discontinuance revealed that the employees had got de-skilled. So they no longer knew how to do the underlying business process, which in this case was fixed assets management. So quite a critical business process because the automation was there. So the accountants were not paying attention on maintenance of skills. And then I just stopped the interview for a minute. I distinctly remember that moment. I don't know if Jona Jona remembers that. Yeah, I do. But uh, I just took a time out and said that, well, okay, this is quite interesting. So can you explain what was the system that was discontinued? Why was it discontinued? How did you use the system? And how are you now navigating without the system? The informant responded and then Jona continued the interview protocol, did his master's thesis on the topic of human-machine interaction. And then only afterwards, we contacted the company again and asked if we could do interviews. So we did interviews with the accountants, managers, system providers, and so on, and then started to work on the paper project. So it was completely by coincidence that we uh, found this case. But of course, you maximize your chances for these coincidences to occur if you expose yourself a lot to these kind of business problems. So interacting with practitioners. Yeah, you know, also, what was the master's thesis about? I know this paper was recently published. So what did you... It's actually research on its own. So uh, I was then because uh, robotic process automation was a hot topic back then. Now it's generative artificial intelligence. So so RPA was the big thing back in that time. And I was uh, interested in finding out how these accountants felt and perceived this new technology. So that was the kind of uh, angle that I took into the master's thesis. And I was like, as said, I was trying to figure out how these kind of interactions between accountants and the uh, new technologies might actually start to kind of form and then maybe have some sort of ideas how those could then evolve. So yeah, that was a separate project on its own. But like Esko said, it provided this nice window of opportunity to kind of look into this sort of interesting topic as well. So actually, just an anecdote. After this interview, then we started to pursue the project with Tapani. So we did the additional interviews with Tapani and with my co-author. And then we actually wrote the first version of the paper without Jona. So then once Jona came into the PhD program, then it made a lot of sense to have Jona as, as an author. So then we formed the author team that we are here now, the five authors that uh, they just actually mentioned. I'll just uh, step in maybe and ask a question here. I think it's a very fascinating narration of how the paper came about in the first place. I think uh, our listeners here are perhaps especially interested in the backstories. I definitely am as a colleague in the backstories of our empirical projects. I think as someone that has encountered skill erosion for the first time with your work, and again, I found it a really fascinating explanation of a phenomenon that, as Esco said before, is not told much. It is not much narrated as, for example, company successes are. So I wonder if perhaps can you introduce the central phenomenon again, skill erosion of your research? And how do we really know that skill erosion is taking place? That's a good question. So that was, of course, something that we had to deal with in the review process quite a bit. Here, okay, Jona may continue from this, but at least from my perspective, it was quite easy 
because we did have an organization that was responsible for a specific business process, which in this case was fixed assets management. So it's a one of the accounting tasks that these accounting firms offer to their uh, business client. And this case, when the employees or the accountants actually had to revert back to manual work, which in this case means going back to Excel and doing the business process in these kind of non-automated systems. We got so many interview quotes and kind of cues from the interviews that these accountants no longer were on top of the process so they were kind of not capable of doing the business process and in this case the fixed asset management is an interesting process in the sense that it has significant consequences for the firm's profits and taxes because if you optimize this fixed asset management process in a good way then you can actually make significant impacts for the organization. But of course, Jona knows much more about this because he actually has done some accounting work. Oh, yes, I actually have uh, several years of practical experience from financial accounting. So yeah, of course, this helped to understand the accounting related issues as well. But yeah, overall, the fixed asset management as a process, I guess I could briefly mention what it is. So it's this financial accounting work process of kind of a recording and tracking long term assets over their entire life cycle. So this is why it's it's important work process for companies so that they can actually optimize these depreciations between accounting and taxation. So as an example, company might actually acquire, for example, a car to move around their products. And as this car is expected to be this long-term investment, then of course, over time, its value is depreciated. And of course, then these accountants in the fixed asset management, they need to understand that how this depreciation should be done in a correct way and so that it follows these accounting and taxation regulations. So there's a lot of expertise required in doing this fixed asset management. Yeah, and to actually respond to your question, so how can we provide evidence that the skills have been eroded that's actually a really good and difficult question and it's kind of a philosophical one as well so how do you distinguish an employee losing skills versus not maintaining the skills so for example in this specific business process we do have new legislation that comes into place quite often so that was something that was really painful in the review process to kind of really think about whether this is a case of losing skills or neglecting to maintain skills. So if you have kind of new requirements and of course, if you actually go and try to kind of operationalize these things, it gets really difficult to distinguish whether we are talking about skill erosion or not maintaining the skills so not paying attention to new requirements which then require you to maintain your skills and learn something new but in the end i mean we just try to provide a clean case of employees knew how to do this now no longer know how to do it whether it's a case of losing skills or not maintaining skills it's kind of a non-issue for us from an empirical standpoint I think in the paper you refer to this, please correct me if I'm wrong, as a degeneration effect. Uh, is that right? In which uh, someone has expertise, but that uh, expertise gradually begins to disappear. And I think it's a very accurate uh, 
description of what you're mentioning now? Is that right? Yeah, well, when we progress to our academic careers, for example, as a PhD student, you are very much engaged in data collection and analysis, for example. So you generate insights from these interviews, you read a lot of interviews, and you analyze those, you do several rounds of coding and so on. And then as a postdoc, of course, you're still leading these projects, so you're collecting and, and analyzing data. But then once you progress through your academic career, you start to kind of move to different roles in the author team, for example, right? And I have been thinking that for myself, I was tenured in 2021, and now I see kind of myself in supervising positions and supervising PhDs and moving further away from the first authorship of the paper. So quite often I'm not analyzing data in papers anymore. So is there this kind of degenerative effect that happens that then what if I continue on this path and really not engage myself in analyzing empirical data, for example, will will this degenerative effect take place over time that we no longer then kind of really know how to do this data analysis, for example. So that's something alarming that I've been yeah, thinking. I think I also come from like a computer science background and I haven't coded in like say two three years now and i'm like do i still have the skills to go back to the industry if <laughs> if this doesn't work out i probably don't think um yeah so yeah so so there's this when we prepared for this podcast i was thinking about this pro automation view and then this degeneration effect so that it seems to be when you read these papers there seems to be these kind of juxtaposing or tensions between views that, uh, so the pro-automation view says that you should automate everything so that you can think of higher thoughts. So I think the underlying assumption there is that we have quite limited cognitive capabilities and capacities, and we should use that capacity only for significant things. So all the mundane routines and manual work should be automated so that we have time to think of higher thoughts. In accounting, that might mean that we we don't process invoices, we don't do this kind of manual tasks, but we focus on generating managerial reports or decision support for executives based on the accounting data and so on. So this one view. And then the degeneration effect view is that uh, if you don't engage yourself with details, you actually cannot think of higher thoughts. So it's kind of that uh, in order to be able to think of higher thoughts, in order to be able to provide decision support for executives, you actually have to engage with data. So you cannot kind of neglect that part. So, and these seem to be kind of opposing views. And of course, probably to truth lies somewhere in between that you automate these manual uh, tasks but and spend more time on doing this analysis and reports but at least the message of the paper that we're trying to put forth here is that if you completely neglect these details and if you hand over the activities and output controls and capability development to the systems that 
has this kind of potential detrimental effects for the organization and the employees. And in this paper, we just try to show how that happens. I think that's a fantastic introduction to what we call the real world problem at the center of your research. As someone that comes from a, I would say, quite radically different background, my knowledge of accounting is really limited. So I kind of wonder, do you think your findings sort of vary across sectors of the industry? I mean, is accounting sort of like more amenable or perhaps less, but there are good grounds to think that accounting, like the presence of fixed rules of stable procedures decided by law. So does that make accounting more amenable than other sector to automation? That's a, that's a really good question. So I would kind of say that, like you mentioned, that in financial accounting, there are these formal work routines. And especially in Finland, there there is this flow of structured data. So meaning that instead of having to process these invoices as images and having to look through those, there's structured data that can be then used in the systems. And then, of course, that leads to a more efficient flow of this transactional data. But yeah, so of course, accounting work, it involves both this kind of a transactional work. So meaning that there are these specific repeatable work routines or work processes with these clearly identifiable and relatively stable booking patterns. That's of course, some one specific area that's more amenable for automation, for example. So we could then utilize, for example, cognitive automation in this sort of a situations. But then again, doing these sort of accounting bookings manually is only part of the work. So these accounting bookings need to be then kind of validated and in some cases analyzed more closely. So like Esco mentioned, this pro-automation and degenerative view, then automating this sort of repetitive a more tedious work might actually lead to this elimination of sources of learning and maintaining understanding kind of on the go. So, of course, it is possible to use automation in accounting specifically. Yeah, accounting is a really interesting area to study. So if you look at any kind of ranking of professions, which are amenable to automation and kind of vulnerable to automation, accounting is quite often ranked and in the top three or top five profession that are kind of vulnerable in the sense that the jobs might disappear exactly because it's rule-based. There's clear accounting laws and regulations that dictate how accounting output should be done. But on the other hand, then I'm not an accountant like Jona, but I interact a lot with accounting bodies. So these kind of professional institutions in accounting and they are desperately seeking new employees and accountants. So there's some of that can be explained through this radical age pyramid that is there. So they have a lot of accountants retiring, so they need fresh employees. But I think that there's actually need for more accountants in the future, which goes against totally to what people are saying on these popular consulting reports and so on. So just means that the working at accounting is quite changing. So there are new systems, there's structured data, there's uh, software robots, there are different kinds of tools available for these accountants, but 
the need for accountants is actually, in my mind, in my opinion, is not disappearing anywhere. So it's kind of a paradoxical thing that, okay, yes, it's rule-based, so it can be automated, but then again, there are need for more accountants and audit in the future. So I have two very small boys, so if they would be studying in a business school, I would actually recommend to them to study accounting. And of course, IS, but I would definitely suggest to them to take accounting as a major topic if they would not be interested in information systems. But I think that there's a bright future for accountants. It just means that they need to learn technology, they need to learn taxonomies and uh, structured data and, and so on. But there will be need for accountants in the future as well. That's a very good uh, panoramic of the industry. That's also very useful information. Uh, so it's, in fact, I think I have a follow-up question on this because you just uh, introduced one of what I found the most fascinating empirical objects in the work, and that's software robots. So could you maybe tell us a bit, uh, in the first place, what is a software robot and what is its role within automation of accounting processes? The software robots are actually a good springboard towards the cognitive automation that we are actually talking about in the descaling paper. So, so these software robots are more suited to these work tasks where there's repetitive work tasks that can be then automated with these rules. So basically, the software robot is kind of emulating the work of the accountant step by step. So this is the kind of a technology where, which you want to use in this sort of a specific situation where you have clearly defined work steps, which you can then emulate well, with this course, sort of technology. AI and other sorts of automation, I keep thinking, at least even in the things that I do, like photography, podcast editing, and all these, I can definitely offload some of my tasks in this through some of the AI tools that there are. And we do, of course, with the podcast editing as well. Now, in that case, I think everyone is can relate to something. Like students can use chat GPTs, people can make music that is copyright-free and all these. So how do we distinguish like which skills can become obsolete in our lives and which skills we need to retain and hone. Yeah, so which skills can become obsolete and which skills should we retain? It's not a million dollar question, but it's the billion dollar question and, and it's an extremely difficult one. And I think that organizations are struggling with this a lot. And at least I don't have a response to that. Maybe Yona has a good answer. But if we talk about the current study, in our case, we try to keep the paper very clean from this kind of value-based or political-based stances on whether or not we can lose some skills. In this case, the company was not intending to lose skills. The accountants at the accounting firm is responsible for their clients' bookkeeping for these fixed assets, so it was definitely an unintended skill erosion that we studied here, even though it was automated. So again, it goes to this kind of value or kind of a philosophical question of whether it's okay to automate tasks leading to skill erosion. If the automation works, why would we need to bother about that? So but the, the interesting thing is here that if you ask which skills 
can be obsolete. You, I think that you cannot even actually respond to that question because it depends on the context and the changing environment. So, so for example, I went to the army for 12 months in the 1990s. Uh, so I learned how to, I don't know, sleep in a tent, operate a rifle, cook with open fire and so on. I think that those skills are obsolete for me. But now if you see what catastrophic situation we have here since spring 2022, so now suddenly these skills that I've found very obsolete might actually become critical skills at some point. So maybe what I'm trying to say here is that you cannot distinguish skills according to kind of, okay, these are the skills that can become obsolete and these are the skills that you you need to retain because environments change, things change, organizations change, systems get discontinued. So what do you do if systems get discontinued? Yeah, so a very difficult question, but that's uh, that would be a topic for another podcast perhaps. Yeah, I guess I could just continue on that because we address in the paper this sort of institutional logic, like in the organization, do we emphasize efficiency over skill maintenance, for example. So, of course, this sort of emphasis also, well, like Esco said, that this context matters. So, for example, this sort of institutional logic that uh, this company was emphasizing efficiency over skill maintenance. So that, of course, then set the kind of a path to the emphasizing specific skills in order to achieve the work outcomes efficiently. So that meant that they weren't focusing on maintaining their skills related to fixed asset management anymore. So that was basically done with the cognitive automation. So of course, if this institutional logic would focusing more on also on skill maintenance, then there might have been some mechanisms to actually uh, see that these sort of uh, negative developments are bubbling up under the surface. So this sort of institutional logic is also fundamental in the sense that what kind of skills could be in focus in specific organizations. So what I'm trying to say here is that context matters. In that sense, it depends on the socio-technical setting of the company, that what are the kind of skills that are required in a specific setting. We've been talking about skill erosion for a while, but I just wanted to ask, how did the company react once they realized what was happening with their employees? Were there any remedies or solutions that came about and how did those changes affect the organization? When the organization noticed that this erosion of skills had happened, the company actually went into kind of turbulent times, so they had to recover somehow. So they were able to kind of bring some consultants in to help with them. They went to training courses, so the accountants simply had to train themselves back to fixed asset management, understanding how the process goes and how you optimize these fixed assets. And then they were also able to copy a little bit the logic from the cognitive automation system into Excel. So they had to employ different kinds of tactics to be able to manage in the new situation. And then there were some structural changes in the company as well, so it doesn't actually exist in the form that it used to exist when we were collecting the data. And the story actually tells that they reintroduced the system. So they have actually, the system that was discontinued a couple of years later, then they actually reintroduced the system. But as there was a lot of personal changes, so I think our kind of contact to the company has gone. So it would be really interesting to 
now do a follow-up study on how the organization has actually reintroduced the system, taking into account that this erosion of skills had happened in the in the past. So, In fact, that's an aspect I'm particularly interested in, again, reading this work with this empirical focus on the story that really happened to the company. I think the paper makes a fantastic job of illuminating the problem, but also of talking about solutions. And among solutions, we found that, uh, that this idea of shifting the burden, this concept that you use in your theorization, really plays a, an essential role in the message of the paper. So what did you mean by shifting the burden and how did it become a part of the theorization you made? Yes. So as all the researchers that follow this podcast know very well that this process of theorizing is very difficult. It's a messy process. It's not a straightforward process where you collect data, analyze data, and then you end up with a nice theoretical model to explain what happens or describe what happens. So here we had a lot of different kinds of iterations about the kind of framework to explain and describe what how the skill erosion happened. At the core, we always had this system dynamics model in some form or another. The simplest one was, of course, that we had reliance on automation feeding into erosion of skills. And then, well, the skills erode, they further rely on automation because their skills are eroded. So there was this vicious cycle of reliance, complacency, skill erosion. Reliance, complacency, skill erosion was happening in all of these models that we then did. But we were not really happy, and the review panel definitely was not happy with the earlier versions of the model. So then I was actually reading this Peter Senge book called The Fifth Discipline. So I think that every PhD student should read that book. It's essentially a collection of these archetypes of system dynamics models, which are based on daily life things. So for example, this uh, shifting the burden is a model that you can use for many, many different things. So it just simply distinguishes or outlines a symptomatic symptom, and then you have a fundamental solution, and then you have this peripheral or some other symptomatic solution. So for example, if you lack energy, so if that's the symptom, the fundamental solution is what? So you exercise, you sleep more, then you're not exhausted, then you have more energy, right? The symptomatic solution is that you drink coffee or you take an energy drink to boost up your energy. And those are the two options that you have. Of course, those can coexist. So you can exercise and drink coffee or take energy drink at the same time. But what the model really nicely depicts that the symptomatic solution actually has these side effects. So if you drink coffee, you might become addicted to coffee. And if you're addicted to coffee, that might actually have a negative effect on your sleep patterns and so on. So that book was kind of eye-opening in the sense that we found these archetypes and we just found that this shifting the burden archetype fits extremely well to our problem and the empirical data that we have. So then we just came up with this final model that is there in the published article that the symptom is this burdensomeness of the task. So the fixed asset management in this case, it's a burdensome task. The fundamental solution would be that you're mindful about it. So you really engage in the process, you know how to do it, you 
accrue skills and then if you accrue your skills the task becomes less burdensome but then the symptomatic solution of course is reliance on automation and then we found that well indeed they were relying on automation and that had the side effect of being complacent to the automation and then we built this final model that you see in the paper based on that we add some organizational level stuff in there and then technology and environmental stuff feeding to these feedback loops so yeah i'm really happy about that final model that we have it's very intuitive it, it fits well and it's kind of nice explanation of how these two coexisting loops happened at the same time so and one thing that I really like on top of uh, the model itself that was a very accurate description of it uh, is very much the stories of participants in your paper. I think a model is always a way to tell stories and to tell the stories of people who participate in our research. I guess my follow-up question is like any stories, any anecdotes from your research sites that really conveyed like the stories that you're telling us today, like any voices of the participants that stuck particularly with you during the writing process? Yeah, so I was just amazed by the sincerity and the willingness of the informants to tell us these things. Again, coming back to what we started with this Nordic region being a good place to collect this kind of empirical data. I don't have any distinct quotes or something like that, but just the overall openness of the informants was quite... It was just really nice to do the interviews because we were able to do multiple rounds of interviews. And of course, the problem in this case was the number of informants. So we did interview quite a few accountants, we did interview the managers, we did interview the system experts, but we only have one or two accountants that actually experienced this killing. So that was something that we then run into kind of difficulties in the review process. You can only imagine trying to get the paper through in one of these leading journals when you have only one or two informants that actually are the object of the study in a sense. But we were able, I mean, we had a really nice review panel and in some earlier versions of the paper, we actually had one reviewer kind of coming back to us saying that I can read between the lines that, yes, you have done many interviews, but you only have one or two accountants that you study. And in preparation for this podcast, I actually took the actual quote from the reviewer. So here it goes. So the reviewer, they say the fact that it is only two accountants is not actually a problem. Always remember that Piaget's classic and much-cited study of child development was based on just one child. So apparently there's this famous psychologist researcher, Piaget, who, who made some psychology breakthrough findings in research just by observing the development of one child. So in a way, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having only one person that you're studying. It just makes the publication or the review process much more difficult. And to deal with this, of course, we try to develop a strong argumentation as to why we don't see this as a problem. But then we actually discussed with people, of course, we are five authors on the paper, so we do have a lot of contacts and people to discuss with. So it was actually Tapani that discussed with his colleague, Andrew Burton-Jones in the University of Queensland, and he actually 
then suggested that maybe you don't need this kind of elaborate argumentation as to why this is not a problem, having only two accountants that experienced erosion of skills. And he actually pointed us to this applicability checks. So there's this MISQ paper about applicability checks, and we took a look at that. And then we did applicability checks with practitioners to actually show that our model is novel, accessible, and applicable to this problem. And that was kind of one part in convincing the review panel that it's not a problem to have only a relatively few number of informants. And perhaps a short comment from me as someone who conducts a type of research called narrative research, meaning going very much in depth of people's narrative. I couldn't agree more. Like, I really believe that, uh, like, the gist of uh, deep narrative research uh, is in going into, yeah, into depth of what uh, the particular respondents say. It's really not yes. a matter of how many narrative but of the depth of each narrative so i think that's something that really contributes to the strength of the argument like carried out here and i think that was a fascinating explanation of the model i wonder if tejas has uh, perhaps we're moving towards the end of our conversation today and tejas you might i don't but as mentions about this wow fact when we're looking at a data collection and when we when we are about to write a paper so this one definitely hits the punch and Esco, do you want to give your philosophy and thoughts on that? Yeah, so the wow factor, it's simply that, I mean, we're all, as researchers, we're all in the position of uh, authors, we're reviewers, some of us are editors, and simply the amount of IS research that is being done in all corners of the world is expanding. So we have a new countries, new universities, more researchers entering the field and publications are becoming more and more important. So that simply, in my mind, translates to fierce competition between the authors to get these papers through. And uh, my strategy almost exclusively relies on this wow factor that we try to offer the editor and the reviewers this kind of wow effect that they have to think that, okay, wow, how on earth did these authors get their hands on this data? So at Alto, we've been quite uh, successful with this finance department. They have some unbelievable, literally unbelievable data set that they have at their disposal. And they are riding a lot with this data set in the review processes and getting them published. But that's just one. I mean, what I try to tell to the PhD students that we have, for example, is that this is just one way to do research. I mean, you have to find your own identity as a researcher. So I'm heavily focusing on empirical data. Someone might be really good at some data analysis or some elegant writing or know some literature stream extremely well. You just need to build on these strengths. And I think that we've been quite successful with Jona and our colleagues to build on the strength of these kind of revelatory case studies and these kinds of unique data sets uh, that we've done. So, but that's just one way to do research. So I'm not suggesting everybody to <laughs> try to kind of do this kind of studies. But yeah, just continuing on what Esco said is that by becoming exposed to these practitioner views and uh, their perspectives about the change, it's 
always interesting for the researcher to hear about these things and then over time these new insights actually emerge from from being exposed to these views so yeah like esco said doing this sort of research that looks into these sort of issues is a interesting way of uh, kind of conducting the research and i believe uh, like as a colleague and researcher myself um, as i cannot put in any other ways i love research and one of the reasons i love research is being constantly surprised by finding and really seen like uh, really going to work meeting other people's work uh, and finding surprising findings and findings that matter highly to reality so i think the wow factor is a fantastic uh, synthesis of this and even again like you said esco how on earth did we get our hands on this data in the first place and what do this data tell us so if you don't mind i might borrow it in my lectures i love this definition of a wow factor <laughs> go ahead please do with that being said i guess it brings us to the end of today's episode thank you asko and yona for joining us today it was wonderful having you thank you for having us yeah, thank you thanks if you liked the episode please consider sharing it and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss another episode